But uh, we're, we're in a series that, that we're calling Can These Bones Live? And, and the, the idea of this, if, if, you were, if you had to take one takeaway from this, I want you to realize that the Lord looks at the situations that we're in. He looks at the prompt, and they are handled distinctly and personally. Um, I think sometimes we want abstract Christianity. Sometimes we want just like some kind of neutral kind of blessing, you know. And, and I, I haven't found that in Scripture. I haven't found that personally. Every time that I see the Lord encounter this world, it is direct, it is personal, it's confrontational with the situation that it's coming in. It's not like, how do you heal a blind man? You turn around three times and make mud and, and, and pray these three words. Every time that Jesus healed the blind person, it was unique, it was personal, it was touch. It was, it was this amazing thing. And so every time we make it a formula, every time we make it about something, uh, this is what God does, I feel like we're, we're due to be disappointed. So a lot of the hope of this can these bones live, is to look at your very specific life, to look at the situations you find yourself in, and to say, can these bones live? Can Moses's bones live? Can Nehemiah's bones live? Can Ezekiel's bones live? And today we're going to talk about, can Paul's bones live, and what that might mean for him. Um, Paul, oh Paul, I, I don't know what your feelings are on, on Paul, also often called Saul in the beginning. Uh, people love him. People hate him. People struggle with him. People respect him. They get frustrated at him. He wrote more of the New Testament than, than other people that, that we have. People argue that we have a divide in churches that preach Paul more than Jesus. And I think it's often easy to realize that a lot of the times you will have entire sermons that don't quote the Gospels, that don't quote you know anything that Jesus said or did, but it's just Paul. It's Paul's letters to the church because they're that instructional for us. They're that relevant to us. And I think that sometimes we can forget about what the gospel is and people have struggled with this. Um, one of my professors in college uh, categorized it this way, that, that Jesus was a Jew. In, in often ways, you could say that he was probably the, the you know, quote-unquote last. He fulfilled Judaism, like, like what he did satisfied where that was leading. Jesus was not a Christian. Paul, in some ways, was the first Christian. He, he had the, the, the religion, he had the, the, the Christian experience following Jesus, and so it, it's a difference in, in what they were doing and what they were about. So in that ways, Paul is very important for us. I mean, he, he figured this thing out. He, he, he led people in a time when there's not other people really leading the way, what it meant to be a Gentile. He was not a Gentile, but how, how to be a Gentile follower of Christ. So uh, 1 Corinthians 3 shows us a little bit about who he was even in his own lifetime. It says this, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulos, are you not mere human beings? Paul is fighting against celebrity culture <laughs> while he was doing this. I, I want you to hear that. Th this is what was dividing the church, right? I follow Paul. I follow Paulos. Well, what about following Christ, right? Th this was something that they had to address because Paul was that big of a figure. When you were the church planner who was going on these missionary trips, this is what he was contending with. Then he says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters it is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So this is an important look into, I think, how he was involved in the local church. He brought people to faith. 
He, wa- he was a man who, who encountered them on the outside. He planted seeds. He made sure that things were coming, and he helped to, to give them direction and redirection as it goes. Um, and by the way, as, as we said, we've got the middle schoolers and stuff in here. This is going to be a little bit more engaged with scripture in this series. You're going to get a lot of background, a lot of story. Um, that's intentional. That's on purpose. Hopefully you find it illuminating as well. Uh, his infamous start, Acts 7. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen was a, a man who was uh, one of the early followers of Jesus, and he had been preaching uh, to a very hostile crowd about who Jesus was. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I, I, I love the fact that he was having a vision of heaven. And he's trying to point it out to everybody else, too. You know, like, don't you guys see this, too? Like, like, look, this is what's happening here. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this is a little bit earlier on than what I read. you. I gave you a, an introduction to how Paul became. This is the same guy. Here we see him being the one who is uh, uh, the judge against stoning the early Christians. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, just notice that but, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So not the best start, maybe, for who you would think uh, is going to become one of the most important people to give us our word of God, to to give us what we use to help define what looks like today. Uh, But he probably says it best himself in Philippians 3. I know there's a lot of scripture here. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. His resume is pretty astounding. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrews. I, I, I like the fact, too, that, that he actually calls himself out as a Pharisee as a positive thing. <laughs> We see this often as a, like, if, if you call somebody a Pharisee, you're probably insulting them. It, it's, it's become almost a slur in the church for, for somebody who's more legalistic than that. But Paul was saying, I knew my stuff and I did my stuff. Like, like I, you, you couldn't question my faith. You tell me that this is what a, a good Jew does, I did it. You tell me that this is the epitome of all that we go for, I did it. I achieved all of that and more. Here's the first question for us, and can these bones live? Do you know how hard it is to admit that you are fundamentally, holistically, categorically wrong? (laughs) Like, not like, oh, I just need to to adjust myself a little bit. Like, oh, I should be slightly nicer, right? Or or I need to understand that theological point slightly better. It'd be great if 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 I had a Sabbath a little bit more regularly than that. But to say, I have been killing God's people in the name of the Lord who delivered us out of the land of Egypt. I have taken this idea of what the kingdom of God was, and I was practicing it with zeal, and I was wrong. So what does that do to Paul? 
It puts them in a very interesting sp- Can these bones live? I spent my life achieving these things. I spent my, my, my mind in trying to understand these things. I was teaching these things to the next generation. That's what a Pharisee was doing. I was the guy who did all of this work. Can these bones live when you have an encounter with Jesus? Where do you go from there when you've been so categorically wrong? So that's what Paul is representing for. So here's story time. Again, Paul really probably tells us best. This is his uh, account of what happened to him in Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. They began, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was brought in, Tertullus brought uh, his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Nice, you know, parliamentarian language. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. However, I admit, this is in verse 14, that I worship the God. This is what Paul was saying, by the way. So whenever he had those charges, Paul answers this way. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors. Notice that. He's pulling on those bones. I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Again, his bones. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. The hope is the same hope. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and men. And verse 22, we see Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. I I think it matters that it says that Felix was well acquainted with the way. Yes, there's the obvious Mandalorian joke that you follow this. There you go. This is the way. Um, it, beyond being the joke about this thing of the, of, of the way, if you don't know, this is a Star Wars reference. But that aside for right now, it's, he's not calling it Judaism. He's not saying that this is the same business as usual. And he is not yet going full off and saying this, this is a brand new religion because it's not that. The question really that Paul's looking at is can these bones live? Paul has no hesitation in saying, yes, this is the same way. It's the same hope. It's the same everything that we had before. It's the Messiah. It's the same hope. It's the same resurrection. We are seeing these bones living. We're seeing the satisfaction of the whole grand story being laid out before us. Paul, through humility, saying, I have found what we've all been talking about for such a long time. So anyway, Felix wants to find favor. Paul wants an appeal. So it goes up the chain to King Agrippa. This is Acts 26, the conclusion of our story where Paul gives us what happened, how he went from being a guy stoning the Christians to the guy that, that, that was, you know, writing our, our New Testament. Verse 4, the, um, I'm sorry, no earlier. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all knew the way I've lived ever since I was a child. 
for the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I, confront, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Fun fact, this is the latest attribution of red letter texts. If you read in your Bible, if you got a Bible with the red letters in there, this is the last thing you have recorded as the voice of Jesus. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Can these bones live? Jesus is saying, yes, they will live. I will breathe new life into them. Let me tell you where your story is going to go. You have been celebrating death. I will give you life. You had thought that this hope was something that you had to carry. I will show you the hope that the blood of Jesus can continue. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. You see how he's going back again to these bones. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to raise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I had to include that part because I thought it was kind of nice. You know, this idea that you have this great learning. You brought all this to the table, and you've gone off the deep end. You have these bones. Can they live? This training, this education, this life you lived of zeal, everything that you've achieved in the world's courts, and, and, and according to your cultural uh, ancestors, all of this hope, what do you have whenever Jesus shows up? My parents moved to a, a, a house in South Carolina. It was an older house. It had seen a lot. Um, the neighbors were sure that my dad's plans were to rip down this old house and to build a newer, modern, sleeker, you know, fashionable house. 
these people did not know my dad. <laughs> what my dad did was he gutted the house. I've, I've got a, a picture of kind of what this, this is not my dad's actual house, but if you've ever seen a gutted house when it comes down to the studs, this is what you look at, right? So the, the flooring was ripped up, the, the ceiling was, was being torn down, the wiring is revealed, the plumbing is revealed, and my parents lived in a construction site for a very long period of time. Um, it's kind of off topic, but you know, my dad drives a small hybrid car as well. Most people when they're doing construction will get like that big dumpster outside, you know, where they put things in. Not my dad. My dad has a car, so he will put six boards in the, the back of his car, drive to the dump himself, then then come back and, and, and do it again. My dad refuses to pay whatever, the hundred dollars to get a dumpster? No, not not on his watch. Um, that's my dad. But the gutting of the house reveals something, right? Was there flood damage? Is there mold? Are these good bones? Can these bones live? When Paul saw Jesus, he knew the hope already. He didn't need education. If you notice, when, when Jesus showed up, it wasn't like, oh, let me, let me teach you. If you remember when Jesus showed up on, on the road uh, with, with the disciples and, and he taught them from Scripture all the things that were revealed turning the Messiah, there was education that had to happen, all this sort of understanding of who the Messiah was. Paul knew all that. The one thing he was missing was, who are you? <laughs> I recognize that you are good. I recognize that there's glory here. I recognize something. Who are you? I am Jesus who you're persecuting. It was a recognition of our Lord. That was what was missing. So there's a lot of controversies and, and big pictures of, of understandings here. And, and I think it's easy for you if, if you've got an active inner, uh, imagination, if you know your scripture, to probably go off on some of these tangents. Um, people understand this. Th this has led to a lot of anti-Semitic teachings, which is horrible and despicable and is not at all what is going on with these scriptures. Um, again, we're saying that, that this was a, a celebration of what his hope had always been. It was a revelation to what that story was. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is a really, really big and important idea. That it, it's not a, a reset switch of like, you know what, everything's gone. <laughs> Just just forget everything that before this point. And when we say, can these bones live? I think that's often how we want to do it. We want to say, you know what? My marriage has been a mess. Okay. At this point in time, reset switch. None of it has ever happened. That is not confronting these bones, right? It, it is hard work to look at the face of, of sin, to look at the face of disappointment, to look at the face of failure, and to say, can these bones live? Not ignoring this, but confronting this. Not ignoring the brokenness, but dealing with the problems that are on the table. Not trying to skip over the hard stuff, but taking them before the throne and saying, Lord, this is your story. Can these bones live? And there's so many good things that the Lord has done. There's so many things that the Lord is continuing to do that it's not to abolish these things. It's to fulfill them. It's to satisfy them. Romans 11 some, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. This is Paul talking about the Gentile church coming alongside the Jewish faith. Okay, This is exactly what he's talking about here now. Um, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root 
that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. If you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So this is a hard picture for us. Because really, how Jewish are we? (laughs) We had a Seder. Okay, that was pretty good. But, you know... (laughs) We're more American. We are more of uh, very mixed cultures than we are anything else. But our faith is ancient. If, if we're introducing a new faith, a new teaching, everybody here should be very worried, <laughs> right? Because has God been faithful or has he not? Now, we might phrase things differently and uniquely as they help us understand things today. But if we're introducing a new gospel, a new teaching, if we're saying, oh, I've got a, a, a new revelation from the Spirit that's just for us here and now, y'all, please check and leave, right? Because that's not right. And people want this sort of thing, like, like we're the center of the universe. It all, it's all about me. It's all about this. But Paul, in his moment of revelation, realized this is the same hope. He realized this is what I've always been longing for. And I, I couldn't even recognize it when it was coming down the road right next to me. So what gets thrown away? What dies and is born again? What is sick and needs to be healed and what needs to be left behind and destroyed? To be born again, church, you're not destroyed. This is hard. I I think that sometimes we forget about this. We we think that to, to actually die to self, that means I need to hate myself. That means that I need to lower myself below a worm, forget about all the things that I personally like, all the things that I personally enjoy, you know, if, if I like rock and roll music, well, I'm sorry, I can only listen to gospel from now on out, right? Like, I'm, uh, it's this idea of almost like, <laughs> except for Tabby, it's this idea that we lose who we are because we feel like we need to be this image of Christianity. We need to be this image of, of, of Jesus, which just is not supported by this. We don't know who we are. We don't know what our faith is that we've been grafted into. And so we lose this idea of self, and then we feel like we're moored, and we're, we're, we're lost at sea, and we're, and we're going around trying to find some satisfaction of life. And by the way, I don't know if this is speaking to you or not, but I've spoken to many Christians who have felt this way. It's like, I don't know if the church is the place for me. I, I don't know that I belong because they're all like this. They all look one way. They all act the same way. They, they all sing the same songs, you know. It, it's got that... that you know, CCM beat, which you can recognize a mile away. And, and that just doesn't do it for me. Do I belong here? Are these my people? I don't, I don't know if, I, if I'm acceptable in the church. Sometimes we look a little more white than what we should, right? And, and what, is that what the kingdom of God is meant to look like? Who are we? Do we realize with humility that we have been grafted in to a grander story? Or are we thinking that we are the culmination of all the things that the Lord's ever done? It's all about trying to get me on my stage and trying to do all the stuff that, that's just prepared for me. To die is not to be annihilated. That's the Christian hope. To die is not to be annihilated. To be born again is not to be lost. It's not to be destroyed. There's something deeply unsettling about the flood in the Old Testament. Deeply unsettling. Not 
maybe what you think. The destruction of all things, yes, that, that's, that's deeply disturbing in itself. But the Lord was grieved. The Lord was grieved. But even still, there was a remnant. Genesis 6, and, and by the way, this is right after the Nephilim, which we've been talking a lot about if you're here at the uprising. So imagine you've got your two verses on the Nephilim, and then it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. That, that is a disturbing understanding of what the creator, we, we, we talk about Jesus being love and all these things. This was there, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I think it's so important. Now, the, the language, the, there's things we could talk about. That's a tangential sermon for another time, which we can get into. It's so wonderful to realize in the face of all of this, the Lord has never lost everything. Even when Elijah said that, that everything's lost, I'm the only one who's been following you, everybody's gone, the Lord says, there's a thousand that have not bowed the knee yet. They're still here for you. Second Corinthians 4 says this, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul, by the way, you can never find a passage where he talks about death in such a way that he doesn't also bring life into it. It's, it's actually wonderful. Like when I was trying to find like where it was so bad, where he's talking about how, how bad things are, there's always this note of the life that is brought around as well because he did not just know death. He knew the life that came from that. And here's the thing. I think we think that the way is meant to be always on the successful margin of things. It's always to be about us. It's always about, about the celebration of how great we are, how, how strong the kingdom of God is. This is our gospel. And we try to move away from it as a culture because it's not as pleasant to, wor to work through. We are hard-pressed on every side. Back to Paul, he was a Pharisee. He had answers. He had the practices. He had culture. He had respect. Can these bones live is a weird question when you don't consider yourself dead. Can these bones live is a weird question when we don't consider ourselves dead. So how is Paul dead? Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air. Notice again the ways, 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 ways. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So here's a question. Are you really living? I'm not talking physically, obviously. I'm not talking about prosperity, which I feel I have to say. I mean the stuff that I talk back to time and time again. Do you have peace regardless of circumstance? Do you have a hope that cannot be quenched? Do you have love before you, behind you, in you, and through you? Like, are you really alive? Or are we carrying on in some facsimile? Are we trying to make our own way instead of being confronted with the truth that is Jesus? The Bible is full of people who mistake the real thing for a fiction. Simon the Sorcerer. You got Johnson and John Brace. They're in 2 Timothy 3. We won't read that right now. If you ask Paul, you've got Peter and the Jews too, opposing the Gentiles and imposing circumcision. So where, church, were you wrong? Where are you kicking against the pricks? Where are you fighting God? Where are you standing judgmentally against the Lord, against what he's working for, with, or through? The thing is, you might be right. Maybe you're the one who should be writing the books and, and, and preaching the sermons, but I'm going to wager that all of us are probably wrong about something, okay? But now I need you to hear me very clearly. I have misled you. <laughs> because this idea of where were you wrong that's the logical conclusion for us to look at Paul. I think that's the wrong takeaway. That's a sermon that'll preach. But what that's still going to do, it's still going to rely upon your understanding of things. It's going to rely upon you to get things right. Do you see the problem with that? And some of you are already feeling convicted and trying to go through your, your mental inventory. God bless you. That's not the confrontation with Jesus. Okay? I, I, I told our pre-service prayer group I was going to mislead people a little bit. That was it. That was, that's the only trick I've got for you. So <laughs> that was the setup, because where are you wrong is the wrong question. Paul's peril wasn't with his Judaism. It wasn't with his Pharisees. He couldn't recognize Jesus. He was confronted with the Lord. He didn't recognize Jesus. Church, this is the question. Are you encountering the risen Lord? Are you encountering him? Are you following him? Are you following his ways? Because here's the thing. If that's happening, I'm not worried about any of the rest of the stuff. He's the judge. How, how he's going to sort out Judaism from Christianity, God bless you. <laughs> you alone know, Lord, you are the judge of all things. It's beyond my pay grade, right? But what I do know is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. And I will preach his name, and I will speak his truth, and I will invite all to have a confrontation and an encounter with the risen Lord in all the ways that matter. We're asking the wrong questions, fighting the wrong fights. A Wimberism that we don't often repeat is that the Bible is the menu, not the meal. Okay? This is John Wimber. He was uh, instrumental in the early days of the vineyard. He passed away in 97. But he said this, and I don't think it's one of those ones that have really hit the ground running as much as they should. The Bible is the menu, not the meal. We come to the word of God often thinking that this is what it's all about. I need to read this and understand this. I need to get this in my, my soul. Now, absolutely, it's the word of God. But it's the menu, not the meal. It tells us what we can encounter with the Lord in our lived lives. The point of this is our lived lives, not what we can fill our heads with, not what we read on a page. The point of this is, God, what are you doing in this world today so that when I'm walking down the road, I can have an encounter with the risen Lord, and he tells me what to do and where we're going. 
The point of this is that we can recognize Jesus as he's at work here today because he's the risen Lord. The point of this is that the Holy Spirit is still active, and we need to be able to recognize him and say yes and amen everywhere that he's doing his things, that we are not as blind as Paul was, that we don't recognize him, and we're persecuting, and we're kicking against the pricks, that we're kicking against these goads. We, we don't ac- understand this. If you don't know that reference, by the way, they had these stalls for the animals, and they would use these, these pointy sticks trying to get them to come out of the stalls. But if you had a really stubborn animal, they would kick against those, those goads or those pricks, and they would stab their own feet. It's hard to kick against the pricks. When the Lord is leading us someplace, when he's directing us someplace, we don't want to find ourselves fighting against God, but moving with him. Oh, this revival, we keep talking about this revival. This is what's been going on in Asbury. And I think, again, church, I just want to give you this reminder that we cannot think of this as trying to get circumstances to line up to feel a certain way. We cannot think of this as that, like, we just need to get a certain culture and then you know, the move of God will have to fall here. Like, if, if, we have, if we have enough sticks gathered with enough kindling, and if we can just pray the right prayers and sing the right songs, that, then revival's got to fall here. Because of this exact story, by the way, because of this exact story, because God is not a force of nature. He is not like the four winds. He's not like the, the waves in the sea. He, he's not something that's a scientific experiment. He has a will. He has a personality. He has a story. He has desires. He has preferences. He has choices he makes. And I think that the church largely has reduced the sovereign God to a force of nature. As if he's just like this mysterious thing in the universe, like gravity and energy and the the speed of light. And, And there's this like power of God thing that, you know, if we can just line ourselves up with it with enough holiness at the right time, then maybe we'll feel a certain way on the inside. And we've completely forgotten the unique story of God and his people, which is what Paul was celebrating. The same hope, the same prophets, the same laws. All of this was the story for me to encounter Jesus. And I almost missed it. (laughs) The way isn't a system. It's not a practice. It's not an understanding. It's not having the right answers. It's a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So can these bones live? Can Paul's pharisaical training live? It died when it met Jesus. His training, his education died when he met Jesus. And it came to life when he met Jesus. Those hopes that he had finally came to life. Those questions he was asking that he was seeking a, an intellectual understanding for, it, kindly ha- it finally had an answer. It, it came to life. Those things that, that, that were there, they had to die when they met Jesus to live when they met Jesus. And we have forgotten this whole same story about what is coming back to life. It was fulfilled. It was satisfied. It had good roots, but not in the way that he understood it to be. Let me, let me get personal with this. I used to be very moralistic in my faith. I had truth. I was right. I didn't dare to come close to the line that, you know, good boys do and and, and bad boys do not. You know, I I knew where that line was, and I stayed clearly on the good side of things because that's what morality taught me. It was fear-based. It was shame-enforced. Wisdom was not really a function of my life. I had rules, and I didn't need wisdom. (laughs) 
right? As long as you know what right is and what wrong is, then, then you don't need wisdom in any way. Why have wisdom when you can have these laws? It wasn't too far from the Pharisees. Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. For through the law, I died to the law that so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I can substitute morality for Jesus. I tried. I can substitute works or service for Jesus. I can substitute generosity for Jesus. And I can miss him every step along the way. So this is the challenges. Church, really, where are you encountering Jesus? This is what I want you to reflect on. This is what I want you to sit within your soul. Is it if your faith is the menu and not the meal, if your faith is on what other people are reporting, if you are not encountering the risen Lord in a healthy, ongoing basis, I want you to be challenged by this. I want you to seek him humbly. I want you to be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be. Whatever theology, whatever practice, whatever might be blinding you, whatever has gotten bigger or louder or brighter than Christ himself. What we try to do here as a church is to allow you to encounter Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about the pulpit. It's not about the worship. It's not about the music. It's about encountering the risen Lord, the Holy Spirit, through the word, through the gifts, through worship, really through the table. If we make it close enough that it's around Jesus, then we're still not seeking him. And I think that that's a little nuance. I, I, want, I hope you can hear that. Because we end up seeking our own paths. There's so many ways that we make our own paths trying to find our way back to him. A path of moralism, of our own understanding. This, this is not a simpler call to say, I just want you to encounter Jesus. This is a harder call saying that I want you to encounter Jesus. Because it requires ongoing, purposeful, challenging work. There was a, a tweet that I found, and I, I, I couldn't put it back up on here. I, I couldn't find it again. But the, the, the line of it was, who taught you that wonder, love, and learning were supposed to be easy? That's a good word. Who taught you that wonder, love, and learning were supposed to be easy? See, it's accessible, but it's costly. Right? It's accessible. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's costly. It's not complicated, but you can't just coast into it. That's the challenge of following Jesus on going the way. You have to look for him. You have to seek him. You have to follow him. You can't just go about your life saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it, and I'm going to add just a little Jesus whenever I, I can. I'm just going to read a scripture every so often, and then that, that'll help guide me on the path. May we encounter the risen Lord. I'm going to have the, the worship team come up. Um, our worship is largely confrontational. Um, what I mean by that is I, I hope that you can encounter the Lord in this. I, the, the, some of the songs talk about in the encountering of, of the Lord even through nature. Paul, who we've talked a lot about, he said this in Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That's a powerful understanding. 
Like, we can all encounter the Father. We can all see his goodness, his vastness, his greatness, his wonder, all of that through what's been made. And I want to read us Psalm 19. This is a bit more poetic than what Paul was saying, but it's the same thing. And with the understanding of the, the ancient hope we have, not in abolishing the law and the prophets, but rejoicing in them, I hope Psalm 19 is more beautiful to you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words in my mouth, this meditation in my heart, be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock, my redeemer.